morning. For the past several weeks, we have been in Romans 14, where Jason has been breaking down this idea of adiaphora. Does anyone remember what that means? Anyone, anyone? Adiaphora. Right. Um, things to not get our panties in a bunch about. Jason has demonstrated undies. He said undies. I say panties. If that makes anyone uncomfortable, I'm very sorry. Um, right, so Jason has demonstrated how complicated this issue is, both in Paul's time, where there were very tricky waters to navigate in forming the early church, and now as we continue to wrestle with what issues really are adiaphora and which ones actually aren't so inconsequential. Today, I'm hoping to give you some good news and peace as we move into Romans 15. Maybe I'll even get a few amens. Please shout them out. Um, here is our scripture for today, Romans 15, 1 through 6. Amen. <laughs> nice work, Ron. Um, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards one another that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's break this down a bit. We who are strong. I am going to make the same assumption as Paul is making in this passage. The majority of you who are hearing this message today are followers of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. You have a faith that is firm, and you should be secure in your salvation. And if you do not fit this description, don't worry, this message is for you too. The first thing I did when studying this passage was make a list of all the things we who are strong ought to be doing. And I don't mean those quotes like sarcastically, I mean we who are strong, let's look at that. Um, they include the following, bear, bear with the failings of the weak, please our neighbors for their good and build them up, have hope, have the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, and finally, to glorify God with one mind and one voice. That's quite a list. After listening to Jason's sermons on Romans 14, studying this passage left my head spinning. How are we supposed to live lives that glorify God when we are so consumed with how our actions affect those around us? Because here's the way I see it. There is a spectrum in regards to adiaphora and in causing our brother or sister to stumble into sin. On one end of the spectrum are those who take the phrase, you can do whatever you want, and run with it. Someone like this might say, as long as I'm not sinning in my own mind, then who cares what anyone else thinks? That's on them. That's their problem. They might quote Jesus um, from Matthew 6.25 where he says, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body and what you will wear. 
Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? If someone has a problem with what I eat or what I drink or how I dress or how I worship or where I go with my friends, aren't they disobeying Jesus' teachings? I shouldn't worry about what they think. God's opinion is the only one that matters. On the other end of the spectrum is what Jason alluded to last week, being so very concerned about what others are thinking that you are constantly walking around on eggshells, constantly worrying about what offense you've recently caused, and basically apologizing for living. You might go on to quote Paul from 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but for the good of many, so that they may be saved. You could make the argument that we should be extremely concerned about others, and if our actions are affecting them in a negative way. Any other way of living is self-seeking and not godly at all. This is the second sermon where I will sing the praises of the great Jane Austen. I'd like to show you a clip from the wonderful film adaptation of Sense and Sensibility to illustrate my point. First, a little background. This story revolves around two sisters, Marianne, played by Kate Winslet, and older sister Eleanor, who is played by Emma Thompson. In this scene, we will uh, see Marianne with the man who is courting her, Mr. Willoughby. Then we will meet Colonel Brandon, who is also smitten with Marianne and invites her and her sister to a party he is having. All right, Justin, you can hit it. If there was any true impropriety in my behavior, I should be sensible of it, Helena has already exposed you to some very impertinent remarks. Do you not begin to doubt your own discretion? If the impertinent remarks of such as Mrs. Jennings are proof of impropriety, then we are all offending every moment of our lives. Good morning. Good morning, Colonel. Miss Dashwood, Miss Marianne, I come to issue an invitation. A picnic. On my estate at Delaford. If you would care to join us on Thursday next. Mrs. Jenny's daughter and her husband are traveling up especially. We should be delighted, Colonel. I will, of course, be including Mr. Willoughby in the party. I should be delighted to join you, Colonel. Good morning, Mr. Ashworth. Good morning, Colonel. Good morning, Mr. Willoughby. The Colonel has invited us to Delaford, Willoughby. Excellent. I understand you have a particularly fine pianoforte, Colonel. A Broadwood Grand. A Broadwood Grand? Then I shall really be able to play for you all. We shall look forward to it. Good day. Walk on. Walk on. Goodbye.
fact, her romantic prejudices had the unfortunate tendency to set propriety at naught. She was wholly unspoiled. Never too unspoiled in my view. The sooner she becomes acquainted with the ways of the world, the better. I knew a lady very like your sister, the same impulsive sweetness of temper, who was forced In a way, I believe that these two women represent the extremes of Adiaphora. Marianne has jumped all in with this Willoughby character. Especially given this time period, her actions towards her, him are forward, unladylike, and inconsiderate of everyone around her. Her heart and passions drive her completely and ends up being completely embarrassing when Willoughby abruptly dumps her shortly thereafter. Eleanor, on the other hand, is so incredibly guarded and concerned about the well-being of everyone else that later in the story, she almost loses the man that she loves and her best chance of married bliss due to her strong sense of honor and duty. What Jane Austen desires to convey in the aptly named Sense and Sensibility is that there must be a balance between head and heart. One cannot be fully guided by either. So why does any of this matter? It matters because Jesus came to set us free. Paul says earlier in chapter 8, starting in 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you can live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. But when I think about Jason's teachings from the last few weeks and think about the, how the things I do every day could cause others to stumble, I don't feel free. I feel the way Marianne did. I feel burdened by the responsibility of how I ought to be living and fearful that I'm not only letting God down, I'm letting others down as well, sometimes without even knowing it. Can anyone relate to this? Amen. Perhaps our problem is that we need to redefine the word freedom. Let's take some time and talk about what freedom in Christ is and isn't. As Jason pointed out in previous weeks, freedom doesn't mean we get to do whatever we want. If we go back to the beginning of Romans 6, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Heck no! We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? In the words that B.J. Hall loves to use, we don't have to live like that anymore. Yes, we may continue to struggle and be tempted to fall back in the sinful ways we know so well, but we have something incredibly powerful in our corner, the Holy Spirit living inside of us, a part of God that is permanently at our disposal. When Paul talks about not living in fear, he is saying that sin and pain and death no longer have the final say. Can I get an amen? We haven't been given freedom in Christ only to go back living the way we once lived, 
before we knew Christ. That's complete nonsense. Christ has given us a better way to live. And better still, the power to live that way, not on our own ability, but on his. That is freedom. The freedom to live our lives and know that the Holy Spirit is right there with us and for us in every situation. Plus, as today's passage makes clear, we have the inspired word of God at our fingertips to teach us, to give us endurance, and to give us hope. So how do we live out that freedom in community? Paul uses Christ as his ultimate example, and for good reason. As Jesus' disciples, we want to take his life and use it as a model for our own. Jesus spent a lot of his time talking about the kingdom of God and what it looks like to live in this invisible, already but not yet kingdom, this kingdom that is already breaking through but we cannot yet fully experience. How to love others better is a large part of living in God's kingdom. God himself exists in community, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this existing in community is essential to his nature. So community obviously matters a great deal to him. When Jesus taught about turning the other cheek, when he shared meals with people of all walks of life, and when he allowed children to come up to them and he greeted them like they mattered, he was showing us real ways of loving others better. So if you think about it, not causing our brothers and sisters to stumble is actually just one more way of loving other people well. If we care about others and we understand their weaknesses, we shouldn't want to do anything to make their struggles worse. As you'll see from the cover of the bulletin, I consider both coffee and wine to be true gifts from God above. Thank you. Um, when I've had a stressful day, a glass or two of red wine is pure bliss. And at our house church, we have Boda Box or Black Box wine available to enjoy during the study. By the way, upscale box wine, where have you been all my life? Um, those of you who have not yet experienced the joy that is Boda Box or Black Box wine, it's good stuff. Um, I realize that having wine available during a house church study is not the norm. But hey, it works for us. However, if someone wanted to join our house church who is struggling with substance addiction, I would seriously consider completely doing away with having any alcohol present, depending on that individual's situation. Our enjoyment of a glass of wine during study is absolutely not worth causing my brother or sister to stumble. Our freedom should not come at the, freedom, at the cost of the freedom of others. In fact, we will experience more freedom and fulfillment when we can grow collectively. Look at this sentence. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. I think this is because when our brothers and sisters become more of who they truly are, it's good for them, it's good for us, it's good for the church, and it's really good for God's reputation. The last time I preached, I preached on sisterhood. And I told our young edge sisters to pray to the Lord to reveal his unique calling on your life and then begin pursuing it with great passion, regardless of social norms and naysayers. Have you ever watched a spouse, family member, or good friend 
discover that unique calling God has for them, it's an amazing thing, and we can be part of it. When it comes to discerning how to live in relationship with our brothers and sisters, it really comes down to this, consideration and kindness. Being considerate is putting away the wine at house church when someone with an addiction comes through the front door. But what does true kindness look like? Today, February 1st, is an important day to me. First of all, my father-in-law, one of the greatest men I've ever had the pleasure of knowing, would have turned 66 years old today. Secondly, today begins a campaign called 28 Days of Kindness. First image, please. This campaign was started by my dear friend, Jessica Watson. She's a creative as well. In January of last year, she was feeling down about the state of the world. She thought about what she could do in her own small way to make a difference. A few weeks later, she launched 28daysofkindness.com along with a Facebook event where people could join and commit to one simple thing, to perform one act of kindness for every day in February. Jessica, along with a few friends, came up with suggestions of small kind acts, such as buying coffee for a stranger, giving up your place in line at the grocery store, sending a handwritten note to a friend just to brighten their day. Then something crazy happened. People started signing up to do this. By the end of the month, she had almost 2,000 people from all over the world participating and sharing the kind acts that they were performing as inspiration for others. Her theory is simple. Becoming more aware of the good you can do and the role that you play in your community will change your perspective on the world, but will also make the world a kinder place. Last year, I was blown away by how my eyes were open to the small yet important opportunities God gives us every day to be an intentionally kind person. Jessica's doing it again this year, and I'm signed up again to participate, and I'm thrilled to see how God will work. There is another website and a Facebook page some of you might already know about. It's called Humans of New York or Honey for short. It was started by a 20-something kid named Brandon in the summer of 2010 who had no real training in photography. He began taking pictures of people in his community, and then he also began asking them questions, getting these people to open up about their lives in this amazingly intimate way. By the way, 12 million people now like his page on Facebook. Um, and last year, he published a New York Times best-selling collection of his best work, and it is excellent. I recommend you reading it. I have fallen in love with Honey, not only because of the beautiful imagery, but because of the stories his subjects share. Often, these stories are about something sad or even tragic that has happened in their lives. And without fail, when that happens, the top comments on Facebook are usually something about how we need to remember that each person we come in contact with every day is carrying their own burdens. Humans of New York has done something remarkable. It has exposed the unique 
but similar brokenness every single person on this planet has experienced and has created an atmosphere of kindness and charity towards those people who often would never experience either. And just this past month, uh, Brandon found this kid named Vidal. He attends Mott Hall Bridges Academy, which is a middle school in Brownsville, Brooklyn, the neighborhood with the highest crime rate in New York City. And Vidal started singing the praises of his principal, Ms. Lopez. So Brandon, the honey guy, he went to go find and interview Ms. Lopez and found out that she was doing some amazing things with the limited resources she had. One of these things she was passionate about was this underfunded program where she would accompany the incoming sixth grade class on a tour of Harvard. Since many of her scholars, um, Ms. Lopez doesn't call her students students, she calls them scholars, um, have never left New York, she wants them to know what it feels like to stand on the campus of one of the world's top schools and know that they belong. She thinks the experience will broaden their horizons and expand their idea of their own potential. Brandon, Brandon then went to Indiegogo and started a crowdfunding effort to help fund this program and set a goal of $100,000 that would enable all of the incoming sixth grade class to go on this trip. It's now raised over $1 million, an amount raised by over 35,000 people. Most of those people are just fans of Humans of New York on Facebook. And they are in awe of what Ms. Lopez is doing and the good she's trying to do. And the extra money is now going to go to scholarship funds for these kids to go to college. When Ms. Lopez saw the money that was pouring in, she admitted that she, just weeks ago, was seriously considering resigning. She was feeling hopeless, and she wasn't sure she was even getting through to the kids anymore. She was days away from walking away. And then Brandon's heart to do something kind completely changed her life. And it completely changed Vidal's life, and it completely changed the lives of every kid in that entire school, and the faculty, and the community. Kindness comes from regarding one another the way that God regards us. It's going out of our way to let someone know that he or she matters. And it usually involves putting our own comfort or convenience to the side and putting someone else before us. By the way, both uh, 28 Days of Kindness and Humans of New York are not specifically Christian efforts. But as I've grown in my faith, I found that two of the biggest components of freedom are being free to explore our faith in the way that God is calling us and being free to call out all goodness, kindness, and beauty whenever and wherever it occurs. It's acknowledging that God is working both inside and outside the church and that he's bigger than every box we put him in. Can I get an amen? These two facts about freedom in Christ might look rather strange at times. It might look like studying to be an Episcopal priest when you're already an evangelical pastor. It might look like participating in a multi-denominational 
denominational vacation Bible celebration or an interfaith discussion of scripture. It often looks like inviting God to meet us right where we are. I have one more story to share with you. Two years ago, I went to the Baltimore Museum of Art in hopes that I could sit and set some goals for the upcoming year. And this is what happened instead. I wanted to find a quiet spot in the Cone Collection, which might be one of my most favorite places on the entire planet. The sheer amount of important Impressionist and Post-Impressionist pieces by artists such as Degas, Renoir, and Matisse in one place inspires me. It takes my breath away. But it wasn't to be. After entering the museum, I quickly made my way to the Cone Collection, only to be met with various school groups and noisy tourists. I needed to find a quiet corner away from others. In the contemporary wing, there are few places to sit, but there is a small bench in front of a large Rothko. Mark Rothko, a Russian-born 20th century artist, is commonly considered an abstract expressionist, though he never appreciated that title. A classically tortured artist, he is most known for his late period of work, very large-scale multiforms, as he called it. He created these pieces with the intention of consuming the viewer with their size and in hopes of creating a spiritual experience. This multiform um, before me was comprised of three blocks of color, black on top and then two reds below, one bright and one darker, more muted. And this really doesn't do it justice. You have to see a Rothko in person to really appreciate his color. The intensity and juxtaposition of these colors have stopped me in my tracks during previous trips to the same spot. I shift to make myself comfortable on the hard bench. I reach over from my bag, pull out my journal and pen, and glance back up at the Rothko. I slow my breathing and allow myself to be fully engulfed by the monotone landscape. For the first time, I suddenly identify myself in this painting. I am the large red block in the middle of the painting. I am bright, vibrant, almost glowing. I am pulsing with creative energy, dynamic. There is nuance in this red, and it is interesting in its inconsistency. Below me, I see the darker red as mediocrity. It is a dull red, flat, lifeless, and boring. Above me, it is a large void of blackness. I see the opposite of life, no, uh, fear and no joy. Perhaps it's what one might find in the total absence of God. Neither the dull red or large black void are touching the vibrant red in space, but both are dangerously close. I recognize that on some level, settling for mediocrity and fear are the two things that hold me back from living the full life I am called to live. Is this a warning, Lord? I glance down at my phone and realize I only have 20 minutes left before it's time to return to my frantic life. Goal setting can and will have to wait for another day. God, why have you brought me here? Please show me something. 
Then I look up once again, and I sense it, him. I have shown you something. Do you really see this red that represents you, this bright, vibrant, glowing, creative, dynamic, interesting red? I know that in the past, you would have used those same words to describe yourself. When you create, when you love, when you use your gifts. But I also know you often worry that you no longer fit that description. You feel like you're slipping into that dull red, or even worse, into the blackness. You worry that if you don't hold on tight enough, your identity will fade away and perhaps even cease to exist. But I can assure you that I see you as far better than you see yourself on your very best day. And right now, that's all you need to know. If you have never had an encounter like this with God, you are not experiencing the fullest life he has for you. I cannot tell you what unique message he wants to share with each one of you at this exact moment. But I do know that he desires that you would really live in the freedom of his love, mercy, and grace. And that God desires that you would take that love and show consideration and kindness to one another. That kind of freedom is how we can collectively bring forth the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Good Lord, you love us so much that you do not want us to live in bondage. You do not want us to live in shame or fear or guilt. You've come to set us free and you want us to live in that freedom. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength to come to you as we are and say, here I am, Lord, use me just as I am. I pray that you would reach out to each person here today and listening to this message and that you would give them your unique calling for their lives and that you would give them the courage to live that life boldly to bring your kingdom forth. Thank you for this time together, Lord. May it glorify you. In your most holy name we pray. Amen.